When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Oh, okay. See, I was trying to set up a second camera because I wasn't getting a feed to this camera. Well, the, no, this it's very complicated. The, and this is actually fine. Yeah. yeah <laughs> Thanks. No, this is great. <laughs> Glad it is. Plus, plus, we're using all this at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really a great first impression. Thanks, Lance. And it's, uh, it's, uh, no, no, no. It's like you're, you're the first time we've had a director come on who's, who spent five minutes setting up two different cameras that, uh, <laughs> that he's not using. It goes, it goes to the nature of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, uh, well, great. Awesome. Oh, and then before, before you get in late, sorry, just, I'm, I'm, uh, very half asked here. What name, what is the name of the company again? That's doing the rest, uh, the restoration and when is it coming out? Uh, it's coming out May 28th and it's pre-ordered now and it's uh vinegar syndrome. Vinegar syndrome. Okay. Right. Terrific. They spelled their own name wrong in the uh, last card of your, uh, of your, uh, did they really? Your promo. Yes. I, I, <laughs> And it's a, it's a really nicely, it's a nice font and everything, but it's, it's, they, they spell their name wrong. Maybe they intentionally spell it wrong. I, I don't know. No, it was I, only that one time because it's, oh, it was only it's the, still vinegar syndrome. I think it was just a mistake. Uh, that's funny. <laughs> uh, uh, but we love them. They do, they do, they do some wild and amazing Yeah, they do stuff. great stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I was so pleased that they're, they're re-releasing the film because so many films don't get a 4K release ever. And, uh, you know, it's, they they were fans of the film, I guess, and just approached us and said, "Hey, can we re-release it?" So we were super happy about that. Well, it's one of those companies that you know, that, like like Flickr Alley. I mean, they, they 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 find movies that they think should be restored, and they and they go to the you know lens of finding material and making it look better than it's looked in a long time. And sometimes they're even PD movies, and and they just are sort of restoring them. Yeah. Uh, so it's there's a there's a as as the uh, as the business changes, uh, there are certain holdouts of people who know that there are uh, still those among us who would like to actually have some hard media yeah. uh, that we don't depend on, uh, you know, the vagaries of the streamers who decide to take stuff off every month. Um, yeah. So, you know, if, if you own it, you own it. And, uh, and, you know, have a movie like this, which has been very hard to see for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, oh, it was, it was hard to see back in the day because I, I, I yeah. saw it on VHS. So, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I also, I'm like, I'm fascinated by the economics of this stuff. It's great. I, for instance, Vinegar Syndrome is one of those companies that I love. And I always wonder, I mean, by the way, well, we're, we're talking to Lance Mungia. Mungia? Mungia. 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 Yeah. Uh, apologies. The um, uh, writer director of uh, the, um, uh, please, please forgive me if you hate this phrase, the legendary cult hit uh, Six String Samurai, which um, Vinegar Syndrome is restoring in 4K. Uh, and will be out by the time you you hear this episode. It's, um, I mean, y- your film is is titanic compared to some of the movies they have gone to the mat for. Um, it's it's amazing that, uh, and I often wonder about the economics of it. it it's uh, I I want to believe I live in a world where there are enough people buying these things to support this company forever. It makes me very happy, but I get I get very anxious. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, uh, yeah, they do great work. Um, the movie is, 
uh, it's so much fun. I remember, I remember when I was out and I remember, um, uh, you know, seeing, seeing it, as I said, on, on, uh, it's possible. I guess I would have seen what I've seen it on DVD. It was 1998. Right? Yeah. It was one of the first DVDs. Actually, it came out when DVDs were first sort of coming into vogue. Okay. And, uh, yeah, so it's, you would have seen it on DVD or VHS. But I, I can safely say I, I feel like I'd never seen it after watching this. Did you see the uh, the re-release yet? Have you seen? The- yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. No, that's like they sent us that, and so yeah. it, it, oh, looks, oh, it looks incredible. I, thank mm-hmm. you so much. It, you know, and and it, that from both of you, that means a tremendous amount. But uh, for me personally, I, I I literally probably went 15 years without really watching the film. Um, I think a few times we screened it for somebody, and so I, I had I had a, re- a re-release, an old release print that I took from some someplace when, when Palm was initially doing prints. But since then, I, I just hated to watch the film once these new kind of HD TVs came out because oh, it, sure. yeah, it's they... so difficult to watch. It was painful for me. So for all of these years, I've really not been able to, you know, even really include it on my reel or do, do much of anything with it because uh, I was so disappointed in the quality. So when they first sent me the, the up-res, you know, scan of the negative, the, the, it, I was just I really kind of almost moved to tears by it because it, it just means so much to me to be able to see my work as it was intended, you know. And we should mention that uh, along with this release comes a uh, documentary uh, making of that is runs almost as long as the movie. Yes. Which, <laughs> which uh, Elijah Drenner uh, put together. He's, he's really pretty practiced at this stuff. And, oh, and so oh, you, Elijah. You and, you and he uh, really put together this feature length basically documentary on the making of the movie. Yes. I mean, and, and Elijah, I, I guess also was a fan of the movie. And so that, that made it really easy to work with him. And, you know, he, he put so much attention and love into this. And they told me a vinegar syndrome that, that uh, um, I guess uh, Brad Henderson, who first reached out about the film and was a fan, got an employee of the month for, for putting this together because of the, <laughs> the, the scope of the documentary that we did and that, you know, going back to all of the original players that we could find. And, and uh, you know, he, he, I talked to him on the phone. He said, I don't know how we're going to follow this documentary up. It's like, you know, <laughs> but I was, I was very pleased with it. Well, anyway, it's a great package and, uh, and people should uh, go out and support this company and, and support this movie because it's, uh, it, it's, it's kind of a find. It's been so hard to see. Yeah, and I, I got to say, and it has been it has been some years since I've seen it, and you know, there's a lot of things you forget twixt then and now. But I, I what I don't remember uh, from watching it on video back in the day was walking away going, "Jesus, that's a good looking movie." Mm-hmm. I, not that it was a bad looking film, but my God, this this new transfer is just it's gorgeous. Um, I trust your DP is very happy. With this oh, he he is. Uh, you know, he he moved to the East Coast, Christian Bernier, for uh, some time ago, and he's and he's been looking at this stuff and. He called me out of the blue and he said, you know, you think I could move back to L.A. and, and you know, get back into DP because uh, I, said, yeah. I said, absolutely, please come and do something, you know, because, uh, you know, his work was so incredible on that film and nobody's seen it. Yeah. So yeah long. Well, now he's, yeah, fine. And, he's and, finally got a great sample reel. So. And, and, you know, watching it on on Blu-ray is going to be even better because it's it's uncompressed. I mean, it's something like, what, 50 gigabytes or something mm-hmm. versus the two or three gigabytes you're going to find if you stream it. Yeah. And so uh, that makes a big impact. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I threw it up on a big screen with an HD projector and it was like being in a movie theater. It was just, yeah. just yeah. glorious. But, um, but uh, enough about that. We don't talk about our guests work. We don't care. We'll cut not all that. Much. We will cut all of that. <laughs> We're not here to plug your damn work, sir. Nobody needs um, to know. <laughs> that's right. We'll even cut. Don't, don't tell anyone who he is or what he's done. 
but um, yeah, no, but it was just, it, 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 it was so nice to see that back in the world again. And uh, we just thought it'd be fun to sort of um, uh, celebrate that by having you on and talk to you about some of uh, your favorite movies that inspired you along the way. Yeah, thank you guys. I mean, I, I, uh, it's an honor to be on with both of you. And honestly, because I'm fans of both of your, your work. Uh, and, uh, you know, I've been out of the mainstream film industry for a long time. I mean, I've been so doing documentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There we go. But, but, uh, but this exercise of, of thinking about the films that made me the filmmaker that, uh, you know, I at least aspire to be. I don't know if I actually am, but that, that I would aspire to be. Sure. Uh, it, it was very inspirational and it was actually a lot of work. It was, and it was hard work to, to oh, think yeah. about which films were they that, that really sort of shaped who I am as a filmmaker, both in my past and today. And, and uh, it, it was a great exercise. I mean, I should have done this years ago. And I, I realized some of these films I didn't even have, you know, copies of, and I had to kind of hunt down a few to kind of look at, you know, the films after a long time that I hadn't seen them. So, you know, this, this was just a great exercise and it's a wonderful way to do this podcast. I'm actually really excited to talk to you guys about That's this. That's great. I was, I was just thinking we should do, um, uh, cause I mentioned to Joe that you emailed the other day, we should, um, we should put together something like Elizabeth Kubler Ross's, uh, seven stages of going on the movies that made me, Cause mm-hmm. you know, it starts like, Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. It's like, Oh shit, this is a ton of work. And then there's of like, can I do more than 10? And then there's just acceptance. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. So like, I, I think I, I emailed you at like one in the morning or something. And I'm like, okay, so I don't have exactly 10. I've got, you know, there's, there's 13, but I'm going to do some comparisons amongst different filmmakers work. And, and you wrote back like, nah, just nope. make it. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like, okay, uh, Empire Strikes Back, gone. You know, uh, Big Trouble in Little China, gone. You know, like, oh, no. Just, well, the show, the show's only an hour long, Yeah, uh, but you know, and, and also what's interesting when you go back and through the other shows is one thing we've never done, which we probably should is to make a, uh, uh, sort of a comparison list of the movies that have been most often cited mm-hmm. uh, oh, sure, by yeah. people. Cause we've been doing this for a while. We've had, you know, a lot of people and, uh, and, and, and certain movies tend to come up frequently. Uh, and ever so often there's another movie that comes up and you just go, wow, nobody's, nobody's chosen that one. Yes. And, and I tried to find some stuff that was a little bit less uh, sort of known or, or that, uh, that was really influential to me, that, but, but maybe people hadn't seen. That's why I took Empire Strikes Back off my list, because I randomly clicked on one of your podcasts and the guy was talking about Empire Strikes Back. And I thought, well, <laughs> everybody's talking about Empire Strikes Back, so I'm not going to be that, like, you know, cliched. And, but even though it was an influential film in my life, and, and, and really, it, this is just a sampling. I'm sure you guys could agree. It, it, we could probably pick a hundred different films that, that influenced us. Oh, on any given day, my list. Of yeah. Films. Yeah. yeah. Didn't, didn't Marty Scorsese just put out a list of, uh, I think, uh, like 120 movies of the yeah. things are important and, and that yes. people should see. And then of course, you know, once that's out in the world, then, uh, he says, well, but I've got another 120 I didn't put on the list. I, I, and, my, and my two big, it's more my, than 120. My mm-hmm. two big takeaways from that were, um, no seven samurai and no porn. So uh, I'm I'm a little disappointed in Marty. Well, are you talking about my list? No, no, Martin. No, Martin uh, Scorsese. 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 Yes. Yeah, I because oh, I by almost. Way, yes, your list has no. Uh, yeah, no porn. No I, porn. Josh is always upset when there's no porn. Yeah, well, you know. It, I think we've, only, we've only we've only broached that I think twice in the. Uh, the, <laughs> the we always. actually did have a podcast. I think we had a person on who did nothing but porn. That's no, no, no. that's it. Just seemed that would that be a way. challenge to catch up with the work. 
for sure. Well, yeah, that's for sure. And also staying awake during it is very important. Uh, no, that's right. Yeah, she was great. She did a few. She didn't, it wasn't nothing but, but she did the, yes. But uh, anyway, Lance, um, yeah, go let's, for it. let's go, man. Let's, let's talk. All right. So um, I changed the order of my list a little bit just since uh, we last spoke about this, but um, I, I want to, so these are films that were formative to me. So, so there are some of these films I hadn't seen in a number of years, but I always think back to these particular films because they, they helped make me a filmmaker in my own right, uh, you know, for what it is. Uh, and I want to start with It Happened One Night. Um, and uh, it, it Happened One Night, 1934, Frank Capra. Frank Capra, uh, being an immigrant, I think, just like Billy Wilder, really had a great view of what it meant to be an American by looking from the outside yeah. in. And, and uh, the thing about films that I love is that they transport you someplace else to a different time, to a different place. They put you in a very specific world. And it happened one night for me uh, was a, a film that I saw early on that made me really understand a completely different period of time in America. Uh, you know, Clark Gable, Claudette Colbert, uh, the chemistry between those actors and um, the world that that you find yourself in in watching this film, and it was brilliantly written. I mean, it, it was so well done, and and uh, much better actually than a lot of the films that came after that. And I actually did some research, and I figured out that uh, it was done prior to the rating system that existed in the golden age of Hollywood. So they weren't quite as constricted by. Uh, you know, the norms of the period, they were still sort of able to be a little bit experimental, you know, Claudette Colbert, you know, shows her leg off and, you know, there's, there's some, a lot of sexual innuendo and things that you wouldn't really find in, in films that came after that. But 1934 was very, very early on in the, in the sort of talking movie age still. And it, it's just such a sweet, innocent film. Um, but it's also can be very complex and just the performances were so great. And, and, and it just really made me inspired. Um, not that I ever went off and made something just like it happened one night, but the beating heart that the film had and, and the way that the characters just kind of grow on you as the film moves on. So the point at the end, when, when uh, Claudette Colbert's father is asking Clark Gable, well, did you love her? And he's making up all of these excuses. And he's like, well, any man would be out of his mind to love somebody like that. Yes, but did you love her? And he's like, yes, I did, but don't hold it against me. You know, I mean, it's, it's just such a great culmination and an arc for that character who starts off being somebody that seems like he really doesn't care about anything. And then uh, you, it's just so nuanced. And, and those nuanced performances just stuck with me for years. So that's that's the picture where Gable takes his shirt off and isn't wearing an undershirt. An undershirt sales mm -hmm. plummeted all yes. over the country. <laughs> yes. And fedora sales went up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's amazing. And that came that was right, right before the code, right? It, was right, it was right. I think it was shot year. before the code. And mm -hmm. it was released the year that, because 34 is a very that's what it dodgy year because some of the pictures were made before 34 and then and then many of them when they were reissued in the late 30s were all were, were had to be cut yes how did that work i've never thought about this so if you're because i was just looking it came out in february and i think the code went into effect a couple months later but if you if you came out with a if, if you had a movie coming out after the code went into effect like the week after or did you get dispensation or was it just I think that anything before the code was allowed to continue, but anything after the code had to adhere to the strictums. So, I mean, if you um, had a finished film in the can and then 
they put the code into effect and your movie's coming out the week after you. I'm sure there were some negotiations involved, but but many of them were reissued and uh, and then after, right? Cut and many famous ones like Frankenstein and you know yeah. movies that King Kong that had to had to uh, have certain things taken out and, and, to, and to, stayed and stayed missing for you know yeah. generations. Yeah, yeah, or that's stuff from King Kong. Um, but yeah, Lance, to what you were saying, because it's one of the things that really hit me when I first discovered that era um, in terms of, you know, you said something about kind of understanding how people lived in a different time. Mm -hmm. It was so bracing in such a great way to see a movie that had all the trappings of what I associated with old Hollywood films. But, you know, I'd seen more films from the late 30s and 40s and so forth. But to see those same actors in those situations, except... Yeah, now they're running around with their shirts off and now they're sleeping in the same bed and now they're having adultery and abortions and smoking pot <laughs> and, you know, and not being punished, you know, and lesbian affairs and stuff like that. It, it, I remember it just, it changed the way I thought about the world that, you know, my grandparents grew up in because yeah. you just sort of let Hollywood affect the way you think. And I'm like, well, of course they slept in beds across the room from each other and, you know, it's, and then, you know, you see one of these films and you're like, oh my God, they were, they were worse than we were, man. These people yeah. got down. <laughs> and that, I think that really brings up an interesting point that, you know, I was raised in, in large part by my, grand, my grandmother and I had a very close relationship with my grandfather as well. And they were both of that era, you know, like, and, and so to see what their lives were like, you know, um, in the depression, you know, in that, in yeah. the, during the great depression, you know, just as Roosevelt had come into office and started these camps around, you know, the United States to kind of help people and, you know, get people back to work. It was, it was, uh, you know, it, but what's also interesting is that when you first start watching the film, it looks like every other film by the era and the way that the cadence of the voices are, the way they talk, it's very theatrical because a lot of these actors were coming from, you know, theater and it just had this very kind of a certain way of being done, but you can tell as the film goes on, I don't know if the earlier stuff was shot first or not, but it's just, it feels like it eases into itself and it becomes a lot more comfortable in, in its own skin. And, and a lot of that theatrical pretense kind of goes away as you watch the film and, and pretty soon you're just completely immersed in the story and it doesn't matter if it was 1934 or right. today. And I, I think it might've been, wasn't it the only film to win all of the Academy Awards for a long time? I, I forget, but up, I think- Up until Cuckoo's Nest, yeah. Yes, yeah. So, so it, it really was um, just a, a great testament to- uh, cinema at its very early stages when, when Frank Capra was just having a lot of fun with it. So I just really enjoyed the film. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's a great one. It's a great one. Um, cool. Well, what's uh shall we move on to the next one? Yeah, sure. Okay. So, um, next is a film that I saw first when I was a kid, uh, and I would, I lived with my grandmother and I would be living, you know, sitting in front of this big TV and they would just play all of these old black and white movies. You know, all the time back then, you know, and, uh, you know, we're talking like the 70s. And um, one day I was just sitting there and I watched this movie about a little five-year-old kid that, that runs away from home because he thinks that he's accidentally shot his brother um, and he runs off to Coney Island. And this is in 1953. And the name of the film was The Little Fugitive by yeah. uh, Morris Engel. And the movie always stuck with me and I sought it out later when I was in film school and I, I would watch it. And again, it was one of those films that just transports you completely. And it literally feels like you're at Coney Island in 1953 and you're, you're wandering around Brooklyn, you know, you're, you're just there, you know, and, and it was done so, with such a subtle economic style 
to the shooting, to the way it was done, to working with a, a real, I think he was like five or six years old, the, the lead actor. And um, the cast was so good. And, and I just thought to myself, wow, this is like a documentary of, of what it's like to live in, in 1953 in New York. And uh, that always stuck with me. And, and so did the, the style of the film, you know, just in terms of letting things play and, and the way that the shots play out and the editorial style. There's one sequence in particular where, uh, you know, the big brother is looking for the, the little boy who's ran away. He's trying to like, let everybody know that he's alive. He's, his brother didn't really kill him. And because uh, they were just playing a joke on the kid. And so he's, he's running around Coney Island and he's just scrawling everywhere he can. I'm alive. You know, meet me over here at this time. It's your brother. You know, and, and at one point cuts to this carousel and the carousel is going around and all of the, the horses start talking to the kid and saying, you know, like, have you seen my brother? Nope. Nope. Haven't seen him. Nope. Not today. You know, and, and it's just such a cute editorial style. And, and, uh, and it plays from this, the whole movie plays from this child's perspective and and that really came to inform i think six string samurai later mm. because i wanted the film to feel like a child's point of view or a child's sort of a fantasy uh you know wizard of oz like you know kind sure. of fantasy uh, but but it i always kept going back to the little fugitive and how uh, i don't know that i would have had the courage to work with a eight-year-old ch uh, child and taking him to death valley had i not seen the little fugitive and, and sort of gotten a kind of a rudimentary understanding that it can be done, you know. And, and also, I think it's credited as being the first truly independent film made in, in American cinema, you know, uh, because uh, it's, it was done all independently with very little money. And, uh, you know, I think it gets credit for that. And it's a very influential picture uh, on the French New Wave. Uh, mm -hmm. they, were, they were gaga over it. And uh, it was uh, all of the major proponents of, French cinema who were trying to tear down the old norms uh, would always point to the, the little fugitive as, as a, a model for the way the movie should be made. Mm -hmm. And I think even today that that still sticks with me because it's, it's truly like a rebel independent style. The footage feels like it's kind of stolen on the street corner using a DSLR or something. And obviously they weren't using anything like that then, but um, I, I think that just really informed the type of filmmaker I wanted to be. Mm. Hmm. And I'm not as familiar with the French New Wave. I am. I've seen films from the French New Wave, but they didn't stick with me in the same way that this film did for whatever reason. Just because they're in French. That's true. <laughs> they're, in, they're in French. And when I, and when I look at The Little Fugitive, I, it, it, the, the, the main character in that would have been about the same age. Uh, the brothers would have been the same age as my dad and my uncle. And, and the mom kind of sounded like my grandmother. And so it just it had this very nostalgic feeling. And it still does today. I just watched it the other day again. And I... I get the same feeling it's better with french subtitles yeah <laughs> uh yeah i haven't seen it since i was since i was a, a kid man but um yeah i remember it just it, it, it had a really great tone i remember that there was something very the, the harmonica you know they used harmonica uh for the score throughout you know they just mm. they kind of motivated it by giving this little kid a harmonica at the beginning of the movie and, and so, and, and it also plays to the independent kind of feel, a very sort of economic feel of the making of the film that you just every now and then have these little harmonic tones come in and kind of inform what's going on. And, uh, you know, it's, it's even been to the point where I, I, I've thought about remaking the film somehow or homaging it or doing something, you know, different times in my life because um, I love the kind of just snapshot nature of it. 
you know, and, and it's just cute. That's another really cute yeah. film. And I wanted to start my list too, with a couple of cute things before I get into the really dark stuff. Of course, if you, if you made it now, you'd have to deal with, Oh God, it's, it's you know, the, the bane of all filmmaking going on several decades now is uh, why, why don't they just use his iPhone to find him? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Apple AirTag now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's another thing though. That's, a, that's another thing, though. If you think about it, look at how much American society has changed. Because back then, it was like, oh, you want to go out? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah. Take your dad's 22 and go shoot right. it out the parking lot. You know? <laughs> times, times have changed. There's no yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I, yeah, I was just talking to somebody yesterday about how, like, yeah, I remember it was like, uh, go, go out and play. Just, just be home before dinner. Yeah. And that, and that was go still... Go run around the streets. <laughs> I, I don't know how old you guys are, but... For me, I mean, I, I, that was still my childhood. I mean, I could just mm. jump on my bike and go run around and come back. And these days, I, I have a four-year-old. I don't know if I would let her, you know, in a couple of years, just jump on a bike and run away, you know, wherever she wants to and come back in time for dinner you know, when the yeah. lights are out. You know, it's just it's a different world now. It's like we're not as innocent as we were, you know, back then. Which yeah. is why those movies are so great. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, cool, cool. And then next up, uh, is a really, really big influence on, on me in sort of my decision to become a filmmaker. And I want to preference this film by talking a little bit about how I grew up. I, I grew up as, you know, working in the fields. I, my family grew roses and we're talking, you know, fields of just agriculture going on for miles. And, and so I had a real familiarity with landscapes, you know, growing up. And I loved Ansel Adams and I loved the, you know, photography of landscapes and, and um, used to carry a camera around with me when I would work in the fields and just take, you know, photos, still photos of stuff. And uh, especially where I lived in central California during the wintertime, you'd get this Thule fog and it would just cover everything. And you'd just see kind of the headlights and silhouettes of trees and stuff. And it was very beautiful. So when I first saw Lawrence of Arabia, which is the film, um, it reminded me of my own life a little bit, just because even though I'm not living in, you know, this gorgeous desert of sand dunes, it was just so much about using space mm. in, in cinema and, and taking advantage of, of the landscape as truly a character is almost like the villain of the piece. You know, the desert is this thing that they're, they're both attracted to and fighting throughout this entire, you know, um, film. And, but it also really struck me on another level too, because it made me think about characters for the first time and the complexity of character. And, uh, you know, Peter O'Toole, who plays Lawrence, you know, this uh, very flamboyant real life figure, you know, that was very instrumental to helping defeat the Turks in World War I. Um, you know, he, he became so enamored with the Bedouin and with, you know, the, the desert in Arabia that, that it, it sort of consumed him and, and it changed him. And to see the arc of this character and the complexity of the character, because he did some pretty heinous stuff as well, um, it just made me, it was the first time that I looked at the film and I really realized, you know, characters can be so much more interesting when they're not black and white. Oh, yeah. and, and, and this uh, shade of gray really uh, attracted me to the film, but also just the immense beauty and the care that David Lean took in, in making that film. And I, I heard a story that he spent, um, I think three days trying to get a fly to land on a map or something because in 75 millimeter, you'd be able to see it. And I, I guess at, at this time, uh, 
TV was sort of edging out movie theaters. And so the, the studios wanted these big grand films. And so, so Lean, you know, pitched this amazing epic film and, and uh, yeah, it just was a big influence on me. I have to hope he left that to a second unit that they spent three days trying to get that. Shot. No, I don't think he did. I, I seem to remember, I read a book on it or something. I think, That's insane. I think he literally sat in a tent for three days trying to get this shot of a map just right. You could they just set the up a shot and then, yeah, leave, leave a guy there for a couple of days. <laughs> he went off to, I mean, what's, what's, what's he going to do when the fly lands? He's going to, I it just. <laughs> hey, Michael Cimino kept them all waiting on a mountaintop, uh, you know, yep. when he went off to, uh, in the helicopter and didn't come back for a couple of days. And, and then there's a, there's a shot in, in that movie of a, of a or, or at least there used to be, of a butler uh, taking a tray through a whole house, like a mansion. And going mm-hmm. from house to from room to room to room to room, and uh, apparently they had to shut that down because the uh, vintage of the uh, cutlery was not apparently correct. And um, yeah, th- those are the days when you could get away with murder. But yeah. that's 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 the movie that kept everybody from getting away from murder after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that uh, David Lean was very uh privileged to be able to do you know that that kind of like sprawling work oh, like yeah. that but but it, it definitely influenced my decision to make six string samurai and and things that i've done since because it it uh it just had such a beautiful appreciation of um both character and the landscape and and yeah. uh, and also the way the shots and the edit is composed really influenced me. Like I can think of one shot where uh, Lawrence is walking on top of this uh, train that they've just blown up. And yes. he's kind of like, you know, all these adoring Arabs are down below him, you know, sort of chanting his name. And, and then it cuts to a shot and you can see this shadow of this man, you know, this long shadow of Lawrence walking and, and all of these people chasing his shadow. And, and there's this reoccurring theme in Lawrence of Arabia of, of uh, who are you? You know, like at, a, at, a, at the beginning of the film, it's like one of the uh, British soldiers says, you know, who does that guy think he is? You know, <laughs> and then and then later on in the film, you know, uh, when he's outside of the canal and he's just walked through the desert with these two kids and one of them has died. And, and uh, this British soldier on the other side of the canal drives up in a motorcycle, this tiny little figure amongst all this sand. And he gets out and he kind of stares and he just goes, who are you? Yes. You know, and, and it's just perfect. You know, it's just perfect because by that point in the film, Lawrence has no idea who he is anymore. Right. You know, and he, and he, and to the point that he walks back into headquarters wearing this, you know, Arab, uh, you know, uh, Sharif's costume and, and, uh, you know, really kind of half out of his mind. And it's just so complex and beautiful. And the way that the visuals complement that by the use of the shadows and just the, the edits are just perfect. Yeah, I definitely re rewatching your film and it's like uh this 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 fellow has seen Lawrence Arabia a time or two. Some really yeah. some really nice desert landscapes there. There's there's a there's a shot that's right out of Lawrence Arabia, which is an homage, which is not probably a shot that you would think, although there are some really nice desert shots that that we wanted to make feel of like that kind of epic in, in Six String Samurai. But um there's one shot in particular where uh Buddy is um, about to fight the bowlers at the beginning. And, and by no means is this film Lawrence of Arabia, but this was my homage to it. When, uh, you know, he kind of pulls out his sword and he starts to walk away from them and they're coming up behind him. And, and you just see this long shadow of this guy just go off. And it was intentionally, we did it that way, just mm. uh, as kind of an homage to Lawrence on the train. Nice. Mm-hmm. That is one of those movies that, uh, in fact, one of those movies, it's the only one I have only ever seen it in theaters. I've bought every iteration on video 
Oh, you got to see it on your phone. You haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. seen it on I mean, I've got, it wasn't that last giant box set. And I watched all the supplemental stuff, but I have never, I've got a really nice set. I've got a giant screen and a great projector, as I said, but I just, I refuse to watch Lawrence of Arabia on anything except it, it's got to be the Cinerama Dome. It, it, anything smaller will 70 millimeter. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know, I actually, I had only seen it on, you know, VHS and on cable, oh my God. And all these kinds of things. Like when I was growing up, I mean, and I would watch it over and over again. I mean, I would just put in the tape and I would watch Omar Sharif's entrance. You know, to, to me, that was one of the best entrances in cinema history. You know, sure. when, when you see this guy just come floating in on a mirage on a camel and you, and you see this other guy's reaction to who this is, you have no idea who it is. And he seems like he's walking on the sky yeah. and then the closer, he just takes forever to get there. And, 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 and it's such confidence as, as a filmmaker in David Lean to just let this single shot play with these two guys in the foreground and, and, and then a camel just coming towards the screen. And by the time he gets off of that camel, this guy is just completely badass. I mean, he's, he's just, the, it's the best entrance I think I've ever seen. Oh yeah. Know? Yeah, for yeah. sure. And, yeah. um, and best scene on uh, Pan and Scan VHS. I would yeah. Well, yeah. well, you know, the first time I saw it, as you have only seen it, um, I think I saw it in 75 millimeter or something. I went to some theater in downtown LA to see it. And, and uh, I was actually, in many ways, I was blown away. But, but I was also a little bit disappointed because of, uh, uh, not Alec Guinness, but uh, Anthony Quinn's nose. <laughs> you know, because when you see it in that definition, it, yeah. it's apparent that he's wearing this artificial nose. And, and it's not the best artificial nose. No, yeah. no, it's not. The Carson Walls would have rejected off. that nose. Yeah, yeah, it just didn't work. And 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 he, his performance, I had always thought his performance was just brilliant. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a brilliant yeah. performance. And you, you know, uh, I was only the desert for you, Lawrence. I mean, it, it's just he's so great. But the nose just, you know kind of messed it up a little bit they should have fixed that <laughs> yeah yeah now they like with cg they can give them a new nose yeah <laughs> nose they job. CG they nose really job. could yeah but i doubt they will but you know now it's just it is what it is uh yeah so that's lawrence of arabia the truly great one um and then the next film i have is uh the good the bad and the ugly and uh sergio leone uh, was another huge influence of mine growing up. I used to watch his movies on cable. Uh, you know, they would, they would play his, his old Westerns all the time. And, and my dad and my uncle were both Western fanatics. And, and so I watched a lot of Westerns, you know, growing up. Every John Wayne movie, uh, you know, uh, Searchers, I mean, from every obscure, she wore a yellow ribbon, you know, on down the line. Um, and I always liked them, but uh, I always felt like they were very black and white. You know, like there was always this, the very sort of um, saccharine quality to these early Westerns. You're either a white hat or a black hat. And then I saw Clint Eastwood in uh, A Fistful of Dollars and then, you know, um, Good, Bad and the Ugly. And, and that was a revelation to me, too, you know, because it just made me realize how cool and interesting it can be to be the antihero. Sure. And, uh, and of course, the, the photography of uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly just really reminded me of David Lean. And it reminded me of, um, you know, just this, again, this wonderful use of landscape and, and uh, editing and really the lack of editing, you know, to just let a shot play like forever. Like when, when Tuco is, is on that cross at the end of the film and, and he's sitting there, you know, with this rope around his neck and all you're hearing are the sounds of the creaking wood about to break that are going to hang him. 
you know, and 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 the, and the soundtrack is just this kind of a heartbeat, just do 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 like his heart beating, and and it just goes on forever, you know. I mean, as as does the duel that takes place right before that, right? And and it it just it taught me a lot as a filmmaker in in terms of when to not cut, you know, when to just let something play for tension and let it keep going, mm-hmm. and and uh, and also just those gorgeous close ups and. You know, especially all of those, uh, you know, European faces, you know, the, the, I think half the cast was Italian and the other half was Spanish and, yeah. and a couple of, uh, you know, uh, English or American actors thrown in and, you know, just the eyes and the faces and, and, and Sergio Leone having the sort of forethought to focus on those things because the faces were so interesting. And these were obviously people that spent their whole lives living out in the sun and the dirt and, you know, just capturing that. Yeah. was was really great and and hugely influential to me and and it, but it was particularly good the bad and the ugly because um the music the picture it was like in that film he finally got to do everything that he wanted to do as a filmmaker and and that uh you know when i was uh writing my first short films in school and then also making six string i would just play the dvd of ennio morricone's soundtrack over and over and over mm-hmm over and just just drive through these landscapes as we were production scouting and and just listen to this music because uh of the way it affects you emotionally i have definitely done a lot of writing to to that soundtrack and once upon a time in the west and a couple others um yeah the, those amazing films i just saw by the way we should uh, uh joe last week have you done this yet have either of you guys done that i saw a movie in a movie theater mm. no i haven't done that yet I'm not. It's uh, went to the Chinese, uh, and we saw Wrath of Man in IMAX, and um, it was it was so it was it was almost empty because they're doing the whole you know everything spaced out and people are still afraid. So maybe ten people in the place, and uh, really really enjoyable film. Um, really really terrific. Not not what you expect from Guy Ritchie, who I who I generally like anyway. Um, but Scott Eastwood is featured prominently in it, and there's one or two scenes where you can just see that like. Guy Ritchie cannot help himself. He has to like push in. There's a couple of scenes where his eyes are very prominent. And uh, I'm, I'm still torn whether or not I feel for that kid or, or just think he's got it made because, you know, all he's got to do is just sit back and let, you know, the Clint Eastwood rolls roll in and he is set for life. Because I, I can't be the only screenwriter in town going, I need to write 10 Westerns for this dude. <laughs> he looks just like his dad. Yeah. Yeah. And and that, and that is like, there's just something about Clint Eastwood that just screams, I'm the coolest dude on earth, you know, and and, and I can just sit here and do nothing and still going to be fascinated by me. And, and and that really is the lesson of, of those, all of those Sergio Leone films that started him. I think there's three of them. And, and he, his presence is just so fascinating to watch. Yeah. And, and, uh, and that, that really does make the film and it's why, you know, it's, I felt the same way about, uh, you know, um, six ring samurai, you know, with buddy, the, the main character in my movie, it's like, we, we, we did go for kind of a Clint Eastwoodian kind mm-hmm. of a vibe, but, but also Clint Eastwood's character was created out of necessity in a lot of ways in those films, because he didn't speak Italian and nobody else spoke English. And so he was, he was saying his lines in English and everybody else was half were speaking Italian and the other half were Spanish. So he had very little dialogue and, yeah, yeah. and all of it was done non-sync because it had to be shot non-sync to dub it. And, and uh, you know, so when we did Six Ring Samurai, I was using that film as a model or those films, I should say, of Clint Eastwood's uh, because I figured, you know, it's really interesting to, to only focus in on certain sounds and, 
you know, use dub dialogue and, uh, you know, these kinds of things intentionally uh, because it, it, it creates attention and, and detail, you know, and we didn't do it throughout the entire film, but a lot of the time we were using a non-sync camera, so we had no choice. But, um, but yeah, it, it's just, he literally could just stare at the moon for an hour. And yeah. Well, he, he actually cut a ton of his own dialogue. I can't, was it in the first one, Joe, or maybe? Yeah, he just, he just would go through it and say, I don't need to say this. I don't need yeah. to say this. <laughs> Which, honest to God, I, this is a, a tip. I have very few great director tips, um, and I didn't use this as a director, but uh, early on in my career, I was doing a film with an actor who was, let's say, not the greatest thespian ever. And was having a hard time with some of my dialogue. And um, it was sort of like, how, how do you tell the star of the film who's just starting out on their career that you want them to talk less because they're not doing it? I was like, oh, you tell them the Clint Eastwood story. <laughs> you know what? You know why Clint Eastwood's a giant star? Because early in his career, he did this film and he realized that if he cut most of his dialogue and uh, that, that, that works, actually. That actually works. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Well, that that would bring me to my the next film on my list, which is Yojimbo, ah, and uh, Yojimbo, who you know, which was, of course, the inspiration for uh, I think it was Fistful of Dollars, Fistful right? Of dollars, yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, you know, which is basically almost a word for word ripoff of of Yojimbo. But um, you know, Akira Kurosawa's films were some of the first films that I saw as a kid. Um, once VHS stores kind of became a thing, once, you know, blockbuster type of stores were there and it wasn't blockbuster, it was some other off-brand store that was in this kind of small town where I grew up and uh, they had a foreign film section and, and that allowed me to start to see, you know, some foreign films. And uh, one of the first ones I got was Seven Samurai, which is also a great film, but, uh, but the one that really stuck with me was Yojimbo, you know, because again, for some of the same reasons that I love the good, the bad, and the ugly, just in terms of the way Toshiro Mifune uh, just is a master of doing very little and saying yeah. so much. You know, I mean, he really is. I mean, he, he can, uh, you know, the, to me, that whole film is like ballet, you know, and, and I wanted to create kind of the same sort of ballet in my own work, you know, because, uh, you know, the way Toshiro Mifune moves through a scene, and I don't know how he came up with this, but it's like just the way a swordsman should walk. You know, and he has so much confidence and, and, and yet at the same time, he really doesn't care about anything. And, and the film to me became kind of a, um, it's very nihilistic. You know, it's, it's, very, it's very sort of a, 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 almost a depressing film in a way because uh, everybody in the film, pretty much, except for the uh, young couple, 
are are not good people, you know. And so I think it was done at a time in Kurosawa's life when, uh, you know, he was always trying to do films that that were talking about the search for beauty and freedom and you know very sort of human things. Um, and and it's probably his most inhuman film, you know, because it's a it's a, a guy who's a samurai who really doesn't care if he lives or dies. He's masterless. He's the first thing you see in the film is this guy walking down a road and throwing a stick. And is he going to go left or is he going to go right? You know, he's completely uh, does not have any destiny whatsoever. And it, it's just such a um, fascinating character study, number one. And, and also just visually, I think it's probably Kurosawa's most beautiful film, you know, and, and it taught me a lot about telephoto lenses and, and in particular telephoto lenses in action, because, uh, when you work with swords, it's really great to use telephoto lenses because it makes everything fast and quick and, and it compresses everything. It creates kind of a claustrophobic feeling that you get when you're in this town in Yajimbo. And uh, versus really wide angle lenses are great for like Kung Fu films, like Wong Kar Wai's films, which I also was very influenced by. Uh, lots of wide sweeping kicks and things like that. But when you're dealing with swords, it's all about telephoto lenses. And, and it was Kurosawa that really kind of taught me that just by watching that film. And um, it also, I think, really had to say something about contemporary culture because it was almost like anything that you do that is good is punished. You know, there's such a lack of empathy, you know, in, in sort of the status quo of that film. And, you know, the, the one thing that gets Mifune almost killed is this little bit of empathy that he has for this young couple to rescue them from this bad situation. And, and uh, you know, he pretends to be this completely soulless character. But at his heart, he's really not. And and uh, so I, I just I felt it was a very profound film, and it was also just badass. Yeah, it's great. It's, it's very great. And uh, um, kind of based on uh, National Hammett, is it Hammett? Yeah, Hammett's Red Harvest. Um, I mean, it's amazing how many iterations that story has taken from uh, Kurosawa sort of doing that to uh, Sergio Leone kind of doing Yojimbo to. Um, uh, I mean, Walter Hill did a version um, mm -hmm. with um, Bruce Willis, Last Man Standing. Um, it's such a contained story. It's very easy to recreate, yeah. yep. you know, and, and uh, I think at the time Kurosawa said, you know, I can't believe anybody's never done this before. You know, it seems like a story somebody should have already done. I think he did it and everybody realized that's right. You know, <laughs> why didn't I think of that? You yeah, know, because yeah. it's just uh, it's and, and again, I think the more flawed characters are, the more interesting they are. Right. And and. And the Mufuni is just the, the, the sort of typically flawed guy that, uh, I mean, uh, you know, there's a subtle moment at the end when the guy with the pistol, you know, he shoots the guy with the pistol and the guy says, you know, please just let me hold my pistol, you know, and you're going in your back of your head, you're going, don't let him hold the pistol, you know, he's going to shoot you. And, and Mufuni doesn't care. He just hands him the pistol and the guy takes a shot. And of course it's a dud or the, the gun doesn't go off, but uh, you just realize that Mufuni, uh, Mufuni's character cares nothing for his own life. I mean, it's just, if he dies, great. If he doesn't, no problem, you know, and it's a complete lack of, of sort of self-motivation to live, which makes him so powerful, really. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, that's my take on you, Jimbo. Great flick. Um, but that then brings me to another Kurosawa film. Um, and I could have picked so many, but the one that I saw very early on is Aikuru, which is a completely different film than Yojimbo. Um, and it's almost kind of like the coin reverse side of Yojimbo because that film is all about empathy and about finding ways to live. You know, Aikuru is a story of a guy who uh, finds out he has uh, some kind of deadly cancer 
and he's going to die in six months. He has six months to live. And uh, he's been a bureaucrat at a city hall for his entire life, pretty much, and has spent 30 years basically doing nothing. And all of a sudden, he has this realization, oh, my God, I've never lived. And now I need to live. And, and uh, it's, it becomes, I think, some of Kurosawa's best work. Um, and it was maybe it was at a time when he was still a lot more helpful and young. It was probably 10 years before Yajimbo. But um, he has a certain sense of, again, a search for beauty and, and truth in life. And, uh, you know, there's one scene in particular where, where uh, this guy, Watanabe, the, the main character, is sitting across from this young girl and they're having dinner. And he's having a good time. And he kind of freaks her out by saying, what is it that makes you so alive? What is it that makes you live? How do you, and Aikuru literally means to live. And, and, uh, uh, and the girl kind of freaks out and, you know, he's, he's searching so much for anything that he can cling to that is alive. It reminds me of old boy, uh, you know, another film um, in, from Korea where this guy orders a, a live octopus and stuffs it in his mouth after being cooped up in a room for 15 years because he just wants to feel alive, you know, and that's, that's how I think uh, this character felt. But then halfway through the film, the dude dies. And, and, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, he, he died halfway through. And then the entire second half of the film is the story of everything that he did once he realized that he had to live in the moment, you know, and he had been living his whole life in, in his past and trying to reconnect with family members. Probably one of the most beautiful scenes I've ever seen is when uh, he tries to confront his son and, and tell his son that he loves him after many years of kind of estrangement. And um, you're flashing back and seeing all of these moments that they had growing up where, where he was supposed to go to his son's appendix operation, but he can't because he has to go to work. And so he kind of blows the son off and, you know, at the baseball game where he doesn't really console the son after the son gets struck out, you know, you know, these, these kinds of things. And, and uh, the montage, the way it's done, the use of the camera, um, the use of, uh, again, shadow and reflections you know, throughout the entire film, there's all of these wonderful reflective surfaces and, that are kind of playing with reality. And, and that taught me a lot about using reflections. I mean, literally, as, as, a, as a, a camera uh, a person trying to do that kind of work, you know, I love shooting off of other surfaces because it's very um, much about like sort of what defines reality. And the last part of the film is told in the same sense as Citizen Kane. And, uh, you know, all kind of like as flashbacks after this guy's death, and how he goes and restores this uh, or creates actually a park in his small town and becomes this kind of local hero. But it's told in the third person because that's kind of like the way you get to truth is it's other people now telling this guy's story. So I thought it was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you really could. You could just do 10 Kurosawa films and get 10 completely different um, types of film, types of narrative. Uh, yeah. And yeah. the fact they both come from the same director, you know, the fact that this guy can do this amazing you know, samurai film, uh, which is all about lack of empathy, and then create this completely empathetic character where you're supposed to completely understand what this guy's going through, and ultimately you do. You know, it, it's such a testament to what a great filmmaker Kurosawa was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next on my list, I have sort of the end result of that, that two-sided coin between Yajimbo and Okuro, which is Schindler's List. Oh. And uh, because to me, Schindler's List is the ultimate bureaucracy. You know, the, the Nazis created this ultimate bureaucracy and, and a complete lack of empathy around it uh, to basically kill, what, 12 million people, you know, and, get, and try to get away with that. And, and it's like it shows you where 
a complete lack of empathy finally lands. And, and uh, the reason I included Schindler's List on, this, on my list is because uh, when I was first in junior college, right out of high school, I used to play hooky from class. And I would sneak off to the movie theater and I would watch movies. I mean, I hated my class. I was like, ah, I'm going to go watch movies. So I just went to go to the theater and I would sit there for a couple of, you know, sometimes all afternoon and just watch whatever came out. And at that time, Schindler's List came out. And uh, so I thought, oh, okay, I'll see this. Spielberg, I love Spielberg. It's great. Let me see what this is. And I was so stunned at the end of the film. And I wasn't just stunned because of the film itself. I was stunned by the reaction of other people in the audience. It was a pretty full audience. And I turned to my left and there's this guy, probably, you know, not elderly, but an older man. And he's weeping in his chair. And his wife is like consoling him. And, and he's saying, I can't believe that this happened in my lifetime. And, and, and to me, that was the moment. Not that I've ever come anywhere near this, but that was the moment when I decided, screw school, I'm going to film school. Mm. You know, because, because there was such a, a visceral reaction in a real way in that audience regarding that film that, that I just decided, I, this is what I want to do with my life. And, and I had dabbled with film and I had done some other things, but, but that was really the moment. Um, I remember driving home and it was probably a 45 minute drive back to my, my place. Um, and, and that whole way, just thinking, I've, I am so moved by this and this is so powerful that there's no other medium that I could possibly devote my life to other than film that would make such an impact. Right. Yeah, understandable. Yep. Well, because film uses all the other media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I often say that film is the only truly evolving medium. I mean, it's still changing. It's still, we're, we're still figuring it out. It's not even film anymore. No, it's not. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, and then I mean, on that same. Schindler's oh, List is one that I always, and, and you mentioned, it's funny because you mentioned a sort of a, a trite version of this, but, but both accurate. Uh, Schindler's List is a, is a movie I point to sometimes when. Uh, you know, it's a tough question. I think we have to ask in this business about, about our work when, when people go, Oh, movies, you know, the uh, movies don't have a, you can't, you can't make a movie that does damage to the world. That does a bad thing to the world. And you're like, well, if you're willing to accept as I do, that Schindler's list had an amazing positive impact on the world. I mean, just the impact in terms of, of, of just education and awareness and, and so many other things that came out of that. Um, and you accept that uh, t-shirt sales uh, plunged when Clark Gable took his shirt off. <laughs> you have to acknowledge the possibility that it's possible that sometimes these things we do might actually have a negative impact. And that's, that's always a scary thing to think about. I think it it is. And it's a, and it's a responsibility that I think we can either choose to take on or not because film can be completely mindless and completely just fun. And there's nothing wrong with that, but, but at its best film can also be something that informs our lives. And and, and it, it literally puts you in the shoes of someone else, all of a sudden you can be yeah. living in an internment camp or in a Palestinian, you know, ghetto or, uh, you know, um, working with migrant farm workers in central California or whatever, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's the one way that we can truly realize how connected we all are. I, yeah. That's yeah. how I feel. I I can also, I mean, I hate to, I hate to rub it into my, uh, my, my co-host. I know he feels terrible about this, but have you actually seen a gremlin since gremlins came out? I mean, that, <laughs> They, they they're just gone. There was just this wave, you know, and now like there are no. There was, a, there was a pogrom. There was a pogrom, <laughs> <laughs> <rough>, yeah. <laughs> Again, but no, but apparently Jaws had an incredibly negative impact on the shark population, which you know. And psycho on people taking showers. 
Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> 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 why we have to do the show over zoom because we smell so bad but, uh, anyway what's what's next what you got? okay so next is um dances with wolves which uh i saw at a similar time in the same theater where i saw schindler's list again uh, another film I, i'd seen so many westerns you know before i've seen dances with wolves but um i would usually go into the theater and i would get like a big gulp sized you know pepsi or something and and i would sit down in the first few few rows and i would you know, sit there and watch the film. And, and as I was going into the theater, I thought to myself, you know, do I, do I need to pee? No, nah, I'll be okay. I'll just get up and pee if I have to go pee. And, and so I sit down in the front row of the theater and I'm looking at this thing. And then this movie comes on and, and instantly it, it grabs you from the first frame. I mean, it, you know, literally uh, the first scene is Kevin Costner on a surgery table, passed out about to have his leg cut off, you know, and, and it's such a visceral opening as this guy tries to put his boot on get on a horse and ride in front of the Confederate line so that, so that they will shoot him and end his misery, you know? And, and then of course they all shoot at him and miss. And, and, and by the time they're all saying, come on back around, man, like give us another shot, you know? And he's like, all right, all right. And, and he does it and you're hooked. I mean, you're hooked for that whole film. I don't care what else happens. You're hooked. And, you know, because it is so well done. And, um, just on that alone, I was kind of like, I had to hold my pee in for like three hours to watch that whole a film. Long like, movie, not to oh. It was super long. I had no idea how long it was, but I could not get up because I was wrapped, you know, watching this film. And what it made me realize was that it puts you into the perspective, even though Kevin Costner is not Native American, and we can talk all day about whether or not it's appropriate to have a white guy be the central character in a movie about Native America, but Nevertheless, it puts you in the shoes of rooting for the Native Americans, you know, and which is so different than any Western I had ever seen before that. And, and, uh, and again, it was, it was just like I was saying with Schindler's List, it was something that made me reevaluate my own perspective on Westerns. And, and, and that was super powerful to me as, as, as a sort of interested person in getting into film. So um, it also sort of helped inform my decision to go to film school because I thought, wow. And again, I'm not saying I've like, lived up to any of these expectations, but that just made me interested. No, it's, it's some name for it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it, it, it's, uh, it, it's such a stirring story, uh, you know, and, and it's so well shot. I mean, it's just so well put together. I mean, I almost think it's, it's a perfect Western in a lot of ways. And, and um, it was, you know, told from the perspective uh, that you've never seen. And, and so that's why, it, to me, it's, it's one of my favorite Westerns. And I could name many, but that's... And catheter sales went up, too, when it came out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to say uh, something just almost blasphemous. Um, I, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I don't think we've ever discussed this, Joe. I want to look at your face when I say this. I, I very much like Dancing with the Wolves. I, I like The Postman better. Why is that? I I saw it opening day and I was like, this is this is the next step in his evolution as a filmmaker. I thought it was hilarious and fun and 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 distinct and all and then and then the reviews started pouring in. It was like, what the fuck did these people see? I don't know. I, I kind of need to do a double feed. I want to see, I mean, I know it's six hours of your life, but I sort of want to do a I double, double catheter. Yes, exactly. I want to watch well, I'll do it at home, Joe. <laughs> but uh, I kind of want to watch them both again because I haven't seen either since theaters, but um I have literally not seen Postman since it came out in theaters. And I, I expected Joe to fall off his chair with that. He was uh, very, yeah. very I, hardly, I saw Postman. I can hardly remember. Yeah, me too. Yeah. It's better than people said it was. I'll 
give it a shot. All right. On no, that note, I will, I will definitely go back and watch it now. <laughs> we get an angry email. <laughs> At least you didn't say Waterworld. Uh, no. No. <laughs> uh, okay. So next on my list is uh, Dr. Strangelove. Stanley Kubrick. Uh, don't, don't know the film. Never heard of it? Don't know anything about it? <laughs> it, it? It has come up a couple of times. It, it's come up a few times. A lot of people say it. it all right. Well, um, you know, I'm maybe a little bit younger than you. Maybe not. Maybe we're the same age. But but uh, when I was young, I was obsessed about nuclear war. You know, I mean, I just I really thought like, wow, at any moment, somebody could hit a button and all of this could be gone. And, and it I, I remember watching um, the day after you know, when mm -hmm. I was in grade school and, oh and, uh, yeah, that... it, it shook me and, and it shook everybody else in my school, you know, because we all came to school the next morning talking about the day after and it what was, it meant. It was traumatizing. It was it genuinely was totally traumatizing. traumatizing. Yeah. I was in school then too. But it didn't have a big impact. I don't know that it really changed anything. You know, maybe it did, but I can I think it actually uh, affected the Reagan administration. I think uh, Reagan himself was very, uh, moved and upset by that movie. Oh, good. And, and well, ended up taking the subject more seriously than he had before. Well, maybe it did. Maybe that's why he, he sort of did a lot of the things that he did, you know, because he really did come around in his second term in terms of, the, you know, ending the, the Cold War. But, um, but the day, I'm sorry, uh, Dr. Strangelove was at a time when nobody really knew the potential of what nuclear war, I think, really meant. You know, we were still sort of like thinking, oh, we could win a nuclear war. It could be great. You know, like maybe, you know, like this right. is great. We have more you missiles. Just hide under your school desk. You'll we be were doing duck and yeah. cover. Yeah. yeah. And, and uh, it was, you know, early on in the sixties. And so it wasn't, and, and that movie was kind of like Stanley Kubrick does Monty Python. You know, I mean, it, I mean, it was, it was his, definitely his silliest movie about the darkest subject he ever worked with. It started and, out as a serious movie. And it, it all became really. silly when he realized how ridiculous the subject was. I didn't know that. I did not know that. But I know yeah, that he started out. It's based on a movie called uh, a book called Red Alert, which is a straight um, thriller. And the more he started to adapt it, the more he realized that, that the absurdity of it, and they just took it into a different direction. How about that? I did not know that. That's that's really cool. I, I know that uh, Failsafe came out. I think the same year, yeah. which was a serious take on it. And nobody remembers Failsafe. Everybody remembers. Dr. Strangelove. I remember Failsafe. No, I, remember I, I like it too, but, uh, but uh, Dr. Strangelove, I, I don't think that Kubrick ever did anything that was not super, super researched, like you're saying. And um, I don't know if it was around the same time or shortly after that it really came out that there wasn't just one person controlling our nuclear arsenal. That Some of these lower echelon you know, commanders also had access to the codes uh, that at a certain point, the bombers get past a certain point, they turn the switch and they turn their radios off. You can't contact them anymore. You know, that there's a real chance that somebody could kind of take the power away from the president and light off World War III. And, and it was all so ridiculous. And so um, horrifying at the same time that, that I think it probably did start a conversation, you know, and I saw it later on when I was in film school, but it made me sort of realize how powerful comedy and satire can be, you know, um, in the same way that sci-fi can be very powerful, you know, like when you're trying to say something about the real world, you know, couch it as sci-fi, like the Twilight Zone or something. And then, you know, you can say so much more and people get it. They're, they're not immediately turned off by it. 
and uh, and it's just such a such a brilliant film. Um, it's use of juxtaposition, like like the beginning of the film when you see these bombers and they're refueling, and they're playing this beautiful love melody Brian or something. Tenderness is that what it is? Yes. Yeah, 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 and 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 uh, and, and it's you know kind of mirrored at the end when you see all the bombs going off and it's the same kind of like this loving moment or you're like, don't worry, it'll all be okay. You know? And, and it, it just, it makes your brain go into reverse somehow because mm-hmm. it just doesn't make sense. And that's, what's so great about it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, uh, and I think that it stuck with me just because of the power of satire yeah. and, and comedy and how comedy can be so biting in a way that, that if I tried to tell you the story straight, you're just not going to buy it. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. agree. Um, and then the last film on my list is kind of a, uh, curveball. Um, is it porn? It, it could be, <laughs> it might be, no, uh, let's see behind the green. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, uh, final fantasy, the spirits within this, oh. this was a movie from 2001 and I've only seen it a few times. I saw it when in the theater when it first came out, just on a lark. Uh, I did not think that it was a great movie. Um, you know, it was the, the script was a mess. Uh, so many things were wrong with it. But what was right about it was the animation. You know, it was the first time ever that I had ever seen um, truly photorealistic looking characters that were not real, you know, that were animated, you know, and, and, uh, it got me thinking, you know, because of the way the hair worked and the faces and the expressions. I mean, compared to what you can do nowadays, it still was very rudimentary. But back then, it, it really just made me think about technology and about uh, where the film industry could kind of go from there. And I would not have picked this film had you asked me maybe two years ago. But um, there's been so many advances in the technology lately that, that it makes me think that we are really on the cusp of being able to make films that are completely digital and completely photorealistic uh, in ways that we never could have before. Yeah. And especially at the independent level, you know, where I'm at, you know, because, because uh, me working at the independent level, um, I've never been able to do a sequel to Six String Samurai because it's very expensive to do, you know, and, and not only that, there's other issues, but, but uh, a lot of the things that I was pitching earlier on in my career were very high budget films. And it seems to me like we're getting to a place now where we don't have to have that high of a budget in order to do something like that. So, so that's yeah, why I picked yeah. it because ever since I saw that film, I've always been sort of curious as to where the technology was going because then it wasn't really there, but it was getting there. And then, and ever since then, I've kind of been keeping tabs on it and I think we're there now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's amazing the stuff that's, that's, um, you know, you're seeing outside of the film industry. I think, um, Joe, you must've seen, I may have sent it to you or you may have sent it to me. There was that guy who, uh, redid a bunch of scenes from the Irishman, um, using, uh, pretty, pretty much, you know, commercial, commercially available tech and making the characters in the Irishman actually look like the young De Niro and the young Pacino. And, um, you know what I'm talking about? Have you seen this? I don't, that doesn't ring a bell. Oh, it's amazing. It's just some guy with a Mac, um, you know, and he took, he took, they're essentially deep fakes and he just took old footage of, you know, De Niro and Pacino and Pesci and everything. So as whereas in the Irishman, you know, they're digitally aged down a bit, but they're still sort of walking around. They're still gruff and everything's kind of. Yeah, but it's, it's not, it's not, it's not particularly convincing. It's, no, it's, it's not. The, oh, what I'll, you're I'll talking about is similar to the, the Tom Cruise 
uh, deep fake that was going kind around of, town. Yeah, because it looks and, like... And they're Barack Obama. But they're, yeah. the, the cruise is particularly good uh, mm-hmm. because the guy who's doing him can do him anyway. Right. Uh, and so, it, you know, the, 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 the gestures and the cadences and everything are quite convincing. I mean, yeah. it, it, it obviously costs a tremendous amount of money and a lot of time to do just that little film. But I, I think we've always known ever since they started talking about, uh, you know, giving Bruce Willis's bald spot a, a, a makeover, you know, digitally, uh, that, that sooner or later this was going to happen. You know, they, they yeah. talked about, you know, we'll bring back Bogart, you know, and it's like, well, good luck. Nobody remembers who he is. So that's, they're not going to be doing that. But, uh, but they, they will be trying to do um, Marilyn Monroe, I'm sure. And they'll, you know, they'll make deals with the states and they'll try to bring these people back. I, I can't imagine that artistically what those projects would be like. Uh, but I think more promising would be just to try to make something completely original with new characters. Yeah. And, and that's become like really, really a lot easier to do without having, you know, Warner Brothers or, or, you know, some major studio behind you. Uh, it used to be possible, but very expensive. And just within really the last couple of years, uh, basically I have, where I'm at now is I've completely retooled my little studio here uh, to do basically animation, you know, be, uh, using photorealistic characters and motion capture and, uh, you know, those sorts of things, because it's become so economical that it's actually easier for me to do that than it is to go on location, and especially during a pandemic, to you know do a lot of the things that I maybe would have done otherwise. And it, it's so cutting edge. I mean, I think that you know you've seen some of the technology used, like on Mandalorian, and uh, you know some of these other shows that are they're using basically video game technology to create um, cinema. You know, yeah. and and it's scary how good it's getting. And and uh, it's still though, like you said with Tom Cruise. It, it takes um, nuance and, and it takes performance and it takes a certain way of doing it that, that you kind of have to trick people into believing that, that this is uh, something that's accurate and real, but it's possible. Like I can see it. I see it. And it's even more possible if it's not supposed to be a known person. You right. Know, if, you're, if you're starting from scratch and building a character who doesn't exist, uh, it's almost like, you know, buying a sex doll. It's like, yeah. you know, you're, you're just creating something new that, that, uh, I think you probably have a pretty good shot at making people believe is real. Yeah. There are Instagram uh, influencers that are completely digital that right, people right. don't know are digital, <laughs> you know, that, that, that sell mm-hmm. products mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, it's like, we, we are so at a point where uh, you can't trust your own eyes anymore. You know, and, and that's, we can debate. That's a great debate actually as to whether or not we should do that. Like, should we be replacing Marilyn Monroe, should we be even working with just fully realized digital characters that are original? Uh, you know, there's, is that good or bad? But well, it's me- not, it's not widely known, but you know, uh, our, 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 our last president uh, was completely digital and does not actually exist as a human being. Well, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Russians. They've got the technology. That's right. Yeah. Actually, guys, you heard, it, you heard it here first folks. <laughs> Uh, I'll quote you on that, Joe. That's right. <laughs> uh, quote me to the FBI. Yeah. Um, well, Lance, thank you. Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. Um, uh, thank you guys so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. It was a great experience to go down memory lane and look at some of the stuff that I liked and 
And, and I'm just really honored to be on the show with you guys. It's like, this is fantastic. And, you know, thank you. Uh, we're, 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 we're plugging your movie once again. Yes, uh, it's a pleasure. Six String Samurai. Coming out from Vinegar Syndrome. It will have it come out terrific. last week by the time uh, we are this. It's from Vinegar Syndrome, and it's an incredible transfer, and a, uh, the movie's just a blast. Um, really, really and, and a documentary that and I... And a documentary. And, um, yes. Yeah. Grand stuff. All right, Lance. Thanks. Thank, thank you, you sir. Yes. Thank you so much. Take care. Hi, Lance. Okay. Thanks, guys. This was a lot of fun. It was a good time. I hope it was okay. I hope I didn't talk too much. No, it's fine. You're supposed to talk. You're the that's guest. You're about, yeah, that's... <laughs> <laughs> please, please don't talk to us in the future when you're on our show. That's. <laughs> Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Stay safe out there, folks. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.